0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. For today's episode, we are joined by Prepper Pig. How are you doing today, sir? Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a great day here in North Carolina, and I'm happy to be on your show.
0: Hey, I really do appreciate it. You know, I actually came into contact with you a few months back. I, you know, We have a, a mutual podcasting friend at the 805 Uncensored podcast. So, you know, shout out to Jordan. Thank you for putting this all together, having us on a panel together. But, you know, during that time when we were talking, you know, we ended up talking about railway strikes and general strikes. And we're going to get to that topic here in a a few questions. But first, I wanted to start out just giving people a chance to get to know you and who you are. Can you explain what exactly is Prepper Pig and why did you decide to start it?
1: Great. Yeah, great question. Um, <clears throat> Prepper Pig, is, the mission of Prepper Pig is to bring emergency preparedness and community organization skills to vulnerable communities. I am a longtime community organizer, 10 plus years. Uh, I've been working uh, predominantly on environmental justice issues, but also on worker rights issues, protecting the social safety net, elder uh, issues, food scarcity, you name it, I've kind of run the gamut in my career. So I saw interacting with these folks that there was a deep need for uh, this sense of security. Everybody was feeling like things are just getting really crazy out here. Um, how can I protect myself? How can I protect my family? How can I protect my community? How can we build stronger structures inside of our community? How can we build more resilience? And uh, and I felt like uh, the stuff that I was posting kind of on Facebook or social media um, was really getting a lot of attention. People were coming up to me and saying, hey, I really like what you're saying out here. So I decided, hey, let's make this a legit Enterprise <laughs> and uh, and go after it. So Prepper Pig was uh, birthed in 2019. And since then, we've just been uh, spreading the word. I am a longtime mixed martial artist. Uh, I hold two instructor ranks, one in uh, Muay Thai kickboxing, the other in Jun Fan Jeet Kune Do. And so going in and, and doing community trainings with folks on just how to protect themselves, how to use weapons, how to kind of size people up and um, know your surroundings a little better, all that stuff was well received. And then the community projects that we have, like our um, winter drive to get uh, clothes and socks and sleeping bags to our hun- unhoused uh, neighbors have all been been doing really well. So I'm happy that the message is getting out there. Overall, what I'd say is, it's not about your individual bunker. It's about the community that you build now before shit hits the fan. Okay. And I'm always
0: impressed whenever anyone gets involved in their in their local neighborhoods, trying to help people, especially when you're talking about like helping unhoused people get more resources, so on and so forth. And we're definitely, I wanna give you a chance to talk about that at the end of the episode. But when it comes to like you more specifically, I wanna ask you this question, what activated you politically? And during this climate that we're engaged in right now, where our politics seem to be more and more toxic as time goes along, how do you stay engaged in this climate and try to continue to be, uh, I guess, a positive impact like in social discourse?
1: Gotcha, another great question. Well, um, what, when I go back and I talk about what radicalized me or activated me, um, motivated me to get out in the street, it was my interaction with regular working class folks trying to save their homes during the Great Recession. At that time, I was a, um, I, I did a stint as a pre-purchase housing counselor, um, HUD certified, and we saw the great recession coming, we rang every alarm bell that we could. And of course, nobody was listening. Uh, We saw the market collapsing uh, back in 2006, almost two years before it hit a lot of people, it got a lot of people's attention. Uh, And uh, then in 2008, I switched over. And from 2008 to 2011, I was a pre, um, excuse me, I was a foreclosure counselor, also HUD certified. And doing that work, I saw the way regular people were just caught in the mix you know at first it was oh i have some exotic loan i have this thing that has an arm or you know adjustable rate mortgage or something and and it's taken me by surprise but after 20 after about late 2009 it wasn't anything crazy it was people with 30 year fixed loans you know the bread the 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 bread and butter of the lending industry it was people with regular jobs who had just had one too many calamities hit them uh, in a row. You know, it was always my child got sick and my car broke down. I wasn't able to get to work, or I had uh, damage to my roof and, and a major appliance went down, like my refrigerator. So, seeing that and seeing the way that the banks were treating these people sometimes i just i'd call in i'd have them in my office i'd call the bank i just let the 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 homeowner talk and just to see the disrespect that they were encountering and the mixed messages and um just the total disregard for what they were going through as human beings trying to live their lives just trying to maintain a home for themselves and their children um, I got radicalized. I think that you'd have to have a pretty hardened heart not to uh, feel for people who are sitting there across the desk from you, crying because they're about to lose the the, the this major purchase that they've made. Um, as we know in the United States, home ownership is a cornerstone of wealth building. Yes. And for people to see everything that they've worked so hard for, maybe they're the first people in their families to own a home. And now they're about to lose it because of some crazy shenanigans that some banker somewhere is uh, is playing some games. I said, no, if I got to get out on trade and try on and start yelling at bankers, I'm going to do it. I was uniquely positioned because Charlotte, North Carolina is Wall Street South. We call it Wall Street South. And... Uh, well, you know, Wall Street in New York has all of your speculative banking. That's where the stocks and bonds and all the trades and that's where all that stuff is happening. And it gets a lot of press. But more likely than not, your bank account, your savings account, your retirement is here in Charlotte. Mm. The people who control that are all here in Charlotte. So I said, if I got to get out in, on a soapbox with a bullhorn and start yelling at these people, <laughs> getting up in their faces, I'm going to do it. And it just happened that. That was the same time that Occupy was beginning to kick off. That was uh, late 2011, right? And I got involved, and you know, the rest, as they say, is history. I can go into it, but uh, but that was how I got activated. Was really seeing, stepping into people's lives in that way, and seeing firsthand that they were there was not. They didn't speak this language. They didn't have these tools. A regular person going up against a bank has next to no chance of getting anything the bank doesn't want to give them and the bank wants to give a certain number of people a modification or help with their loan or if they've fallen behind or something so that they can say oh we've helped this many people while they're sticking it to three four ten times that many people on the other end you know it's It's stories like that,
0: that make it so obvious, like why we're kind of seeing, you know, in in a really broader sense, why there's such a like a, a big push right now for I think unions in America, because we are seeing... I guess, like an erosion of like, I guess, trust in like institutions, right? I mean, like, you can't like get a house, you know, without having to go through so many different issues, you know, your job is undercutting you, you know, like tax policies to be coming down on people like middle class people, you know, inflation is what it is right now. Like Everywhere you turn, it feels like people are just trying to find some way to claw back some sense of power, you know, because of all these different, um, I guess, oppressive forces that are coming down on people right now. When I, when we first like got like, to discussing, you know, like um, the conversation of strikes, when we first met each other, like on the 805 Uncensored panel, we were talking about general strikes, railway strikes, I want to transition to that now. Talking about this in general, what exactly is a, uh, a general strike? And do you think that it actually can even manifest, I guess, like in today's society?
1: So in the broadest sense a general strike is a strike in which enough people are slowing down production that it hurts. the, The pain of that is spread across the population. And that pain should be targeted in a general strike. It should be targeted at the people who control those levers of production, the people who are the ownership class. It should be targeted to hurt their bottom lines, to make their um, profits drop, to make their uh, stakeholders and their stockholders um, kind of start to question their their actions and pull back from some of the damaging tactics that they're using against workers. Make no mistake, there is a definite war on workers, and it's been going on since the days of Reagan. I think um, 78 or 79, was when they really started to attack unions and um and unionization, Reagan came in and immediately broke the uh, I think it was the um traffic uh, air traffic controller strike, mm-hmm. um firing everybody, hiring a bunch of scabs. And you know we've seen that throughout history that the major players will come in break strikes using force if necessary. Some of the worst violence in America has happened on union lines and and against unionization. But yeah, people, like you said, need that sense of security and unions bring job security. They give you a voice in your workplace. They allow you to advocate for yourself and others. Um, Union shops tend to be better paid shops with better benefits we see these things going by the wayside. You know, I look at my parents, which I'm, you know, I'm an older cat, you know, my, my parents are boomers. And, you know, I came up in a, in a time when they were teaching me, you go to school, you get a degree, you work hard, you, you know, you're in a job for 30 years, 40 years, you get the pension, you get the gold watch, you retire, you enjoy your retirement, case closed. Right. And then I stepped out into, you know, nine eleven happened my senior year of college. You know, I came out of college directly into the post nine eleven world, and then you had uh, the dot com bust. You had the first housing crisis. Uh, you had um, rolling back Glass Steagall and that that separation in banking. Glass Steagall, for those who don't know, is the the law from I think the I think it was from either the fifties or from the thirties. I'm not sure, but it separated banks so that your um, your savings and your mortgage and your retirement weren't also tied up in speculation. They weren't tied up in stocks and bonds and stuff that could lose its value. Right. You know, Somebody, Elon Musk goes out and does something crazy with Twitter, Twitter tanks. Well, if that's where your retirement money is, you're screwed. Um, <clears throat> so unions are the way that the working class holds and directs power. And general strikes are the ultimate tool of unions to say, we can affect your bottom lines, we can affect um, production, we can affect distribution. Now, is a general strike likely? In this climate, no. Before a general strike can happen, we're going to need a lot more unionization. We're going to need a lot more people under the protection of unions. Right now, if I say, hey, we're going on a general strike, well, 85% of the people that I'm talking to, they can't get off work and they can't they can't stay off work, definitely. And they don't have any protections and their boss can fire them at a whim. You know, I live in North Carolina, a right to work for less state. So when you, um, <clears throat> so they have made it quite clear that uh, if you leave your job and participate in the strike you will be fired and you will be replaced. If you are under a legit union, they will have money, they will have stewards, they will have organizers, they will have educators, they will have all these people in place to help you know your rights, to help you know the laws, to help you um, coordinate with other people. What we found with the railway strike, which was very interesting, was that the railway and um, rail distribution, those rail hubs that move almost all the goods that that we get in this country, you know, if if people don't know, almost anything you order that isn't built right here, and a lot of it that is built right here, but a lot of it that's imported comes to ports on these big container, uh, in these big uh, container ships. Those containers are offloaded to trucks or to um, trains, and then that that stuff is shipped all over the country. Most of that goes by train until it gets to a smaller distribution hub where it can then be loaded up to trucks and taken to a distribution factory like your Amazon warehouse, where it's then put in a van, somebody takes it to your door. So cutting out that piece is, in effect, a general strike because, yeah, everybody can go to work, but if there's nothing on the shelves to sell in your store or what have you, in your car dealership or whatever, then what are you going to do? You know, what's your boss going to do? What's the management going to do? What's the owner going to do? So we were very interested and um, we were very interested in, in watching the rail strike, which is not over by any means. They um, had a tentative agreement, which has not been ratified as far as I know by um, all of the unions involved. A strike could still happen. I think that people don't really understand how big a deal that was like you shut down rails that is you know i was telling people hey on <laughs> this date the, the rails could be shut down you need to have three weeks of food and water you know in your house because it's about to get bonkers if that happens i don't think people really understood
0: yeah and honestly that that's something that i definitely want to go into a little bit more about just the effects that a strike like that could have on, I guess, on all of us, not just on the economy. But, you know, before we do all of that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have more with our guest, Proper Big. Please stay tuned.
2: Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode, Bathing Beauties Beads is a full service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at BathingBeautiesBeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage-inspired clothing, shoes, and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial social and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere dreamy tunes and the best customer service in the west and you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com
0: welcome back from the break everyone thank you for sticking with us through this episode of independent thought So before we went on the break, we were talking about, you know, the differences between like, you know, regular strikes, general strikes, you know, how exactly they are effective, so on and so forth, and why probably a general strike is not entirely likely right now in today's society. But let me focus on something else in general. When we were talking before, you had mentioned like this idea of like a, a choke point, I guess, like in distribution, uh, and you know, as far as like, a way of helping people find like, I guess, like the right ways to organize a strike in particular. Can you go into a little more depth about what exactly that is and why that is probably like the most effective way to organizing any strike?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. A worker choke point is um, if you have, for instance, 100 employees at your job, Um, You want to find the fewest number of employees uh, whose absence or if they stop working will affect everyone else. So in the case of the country, nationally, we know that if you take out the trains, if you remove that piece, that's a relatively small number of workers compared to the millions of workers out there. But if you remove that piece, millions of workers will have nothing to do with their jobs because the product simply won't be there. Um, you'll have all types of uh, delays, shipping won't happen, you know, people can't get their goods, people have nothing to sell, nothing on their shelves. That's how that works. So that is a choke point. I first came across this idea of choke points and it really intrigued me. I was learning about a, um, a campaign, an organizing campaign called Save Market Basket. And I have referenced this a number of times, but uh, if you're unfamiliar with Save Market Basket, it was a grocery chain in the Northeast, and uh, it was owned by this really nice guy. Uh, this was one of the few places where you could still—and this was in the mid-teens, um, you know, maybe late, maybe late aughts to mid-teens—you could still work there, 30 years, get a pension, you know, get a. a a livable wage, all that good stuff. Well, his cousin actually came in, the owner's cousin came in, did this brutal takeover of the company and um, and started chopping it up. He started cutting hours, started cutting benefits, started removing all those perks. They wanted to suck all of the profit that they could out of this thing before they basically you know, put it to rest. The customers revolted. They were definitely on the side of the workers. The workers were struggling. They wanted to figure out how they could strike in such a way that that would be effective. But they knew that their union did not have the money to pay for all of their workers, for all the cashiers and the butchers and, you know, those bad boys and to pay for all of them to be out of work. Right. What they found, though, was that relatively few truck drivers were, were um, paid by the company. If you took those people out of the mix and stopped the trucks from delivering the goods to the stores, then everybody could still show up to work. The butchers show up, the, the bad boys show up, the cashiers show up. There's just nothing on the shelves. So they had enough money to pay for those people while they were out, while they were on strike to keep them, to keep their bills paid, to keep food on the table while they were doing that. That's the purpose of the union uh, is during a strike. The purpose of the union is to pay the workers or to make it where the workers can at least survive while the strike is going on. And they eventually were able to win. Now, they did a whole bunch of it's a it's a fantastic look. At all sides of the equation, because you get to see how the owners reacted you they called in these consultants who ran these ads and created this marketing campaign against the workers in their own stores uh meanwhile the workers are out on strike they were hosting um these rallies in the parking lots of these stores customers were coming and taking their receipts from other stores for the goods they would have bought at market basket and taping them to the windows wow. of the stores so that inside management or whoever could see this is how much money you have lost from me personally it, it was bonkers it was bonkers but uh, eventually they did win uh, i do believe that they're I heard that there was a a movie in the works about that whole campaign. Um, I first heard about it on uh, public radio. But that's what I mean. The power of that choke point, the power of finding those few people without whom that business cannot survive, getting to them, organizing them, unionizing them, making sure they understand what's at stake if they don't participate, painting that future of what can happen if they do participate. And then lining up all the um, financial resources and everything for them to sit out and um, and hold the line. You know, other people also have to make sure that scabs don't come in, that um, that the company isn't able to skirt around these striking workers uh, <clears throat> or force people uh, back to work.
0: You know, I, I feel like we're living in a time right now where, people are wondering about questions like this, about like strikes, unionization, just worker empowerment in general. Because again, we were talking about this before in the first half of the episode, people are just feeling these monumental oppressive forces from all over the place. And it's hard to stay engaged politically right now when it feels like we have absolutely no help from politicians, which I guess has never been the case, but it felt like there was a glimmer of hope over the last few years, but that's been almost wiped away by this current administration as far as I'm concerned. Now, like looking at like the future, you know, people trying to find a ways to stay politically active, politically activated. This is something that I've had a hard time explaining to people myself, you know, in my own episodes. I'm like, how do I, you know, say the message with like, you know, this is the reason why you should stay active. This is the reason why you should, you know, stay in the fight, so on and so forth, because it looks bleak right now. So I want to talk about activism for a second here. You are someone, I think when we spoke before, you were someone who has said that you don't think that people can be activists you know, like forever. It's like it's not like something that you can just do indefinitely. What is your feelings on the best way to be involved in activism in general? And I guess what should people do uh, as far as wanting to get more involved and staying engaged in this political time?
1: Those are great questions. That's a lot of questions on the way. So <laughs> I'm gonna try and remember. Please refresh me if I get off track. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the the role of the activist is to move that issue forward and to keep the drumbeat going so that when the time is right all the pieces are in place to make that um critical move that's going to win you a progressive step there are a couple things that are I think misunderstood about the nature of activism at its core. One, I'd speak to a lot of elders. I have had the, the great honor and privilege to have always been around a lot of elders and a lot of people who, who have been active. My own abuela, my grandmother, um, was a community organizer for the new Puerto Rican community, just starting in New York city, back in the fifties. You know, she attended the, um, March on Washington with my father and I got to go back 50 years later and be there for the 50 year anniversary of the March on Washington. So there's this long line of, of listening to elders. And what I hear from elders is I can't believe we have to fight about these same things. I can't believe we're still fighting over, um, over Roe v. Wade. I can't believe we're still fighting over basic civil rights. I can't believe the Voting Rights Act has been um, hamstrung the way that it has, and we still have to fight so hard for voting rights. I think a lot of people believed that if they won these advances, that was it. You're done. You won. Go home. Have fun. You know, chill, relax. That's not the way it works. The people who want to take us backwards, the people who want to cut your rights, um they don't ever stop, so you can't ever stop, all right you as I mean, the progressive movement can't ever stop, and I think too many people get into it thinking, now that I'm here, <laughs> now we're gonna win. um, I have literally heard new activists say, you know, um." bump everything y'all did before. I don't care about the history. I'm here now and and that's why we're gonna win because I'm here, you know? Um, We are steeped in American culture with this notion of rugged individualism that a single person can make all the difference. And we're given uh, examples like Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman. We're given all these examples of individuals Acting to shake up a structure, we are not told about the minister's conference and SNCC and the um, the deacons for defense and all these people that made those movements possible. We're not taught we're not told about the thousands of organizers who had to uh, be there for the um, the bus strikes that happened and all the carpooling and and churches and vans and stuff that had to be activated and coordinated to make all that work. We're just told, hey, this one guy, he he didn't like it. And he stood up and they had to listen. And now it's better, you know, and that's what we're given. So people come in thinking, I can do it all and they get burned out. Activism is is something that is by definition traumatizing. Yeah. Don't let anybody Fool you a lot of times. Organizers, and this is this is a, a problem that I also talk about with organizers. Is we have to be truthful. What they call um, what they call it in union organizing, it's inoculation. We have to inoculate our uh, members against what is actually going to going to come at them. I had a woman who was a uh, a very outspoken critic of Duke Energy, the local energy provider here. They are a monopoly. Um, they have con- contaminated um 16 we have 16 cancer clusters in north carolina around all of them around these duke energy waste sites where they've buried uh toxic waste um some of it uh all of it carcinogenic some of it radioactive all in unlined pits on waterways next to people's houses literally i've been to this woman's house the lot next to hers is a toxic waste dump you know and she- this woman came to me you know very upset because a man had approached her in the grocery store with her child a man had approached her angrily you know calling her out about what she was doing and she thought she thought maybe he was going to get violent she didn't know and i was like man i feel i feel terrible because i should have told you that's 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 you know if you stand up you're going to get the attention the spotlight is on you and the people who who don't like you they don't feel any type of way about approaching you in a grocery store, you know, and calling you by name. And that can be off-putting. That can be unsettling. So activism, I tell people when you, when you want to be an activist, there are, you know, you pick your issue, you find out what you are passionate about changing, and then find out who is already working on that. I know a lot of people come into it and they say, I'm passionate about XYZ. And they want to start an organization. They want to build something from scratch they want to you know create the wheel and i'm like the wheel's likely already there there's already people working on it yeah when i first started in activism with occupy i was really going after the bankers as a former um foreclosure counselor then i found the universe the universe of activism which is Yes, there were people in my circle who were there about the banks. There were also people who were there about the military industrial complex. There were people there who were concerned about education. There were people there who were concerned about uh, food insecurity and food scarcity. So then I started to learn about all these things and how they interconnect. And that's where it can get difficult because you want to fight. You know, you want to be out there continually. But even the super producers, even the the superstar activists that I know, probably have a have a tenure of about two years. Mm. You know, and people they might think that's that's pretty short, but in the world of activism, that is a long time. That is a long time to be on the front line of some of these. You know, forgive my using military lingo, but that is a long a long time to be standing. There, you know, seeing the worst of your city council, seeing the worst of these organizations and these corporations, seeing the worst of the banks, um, you'd have to be, um, if you if you have a if you have a heart that isn't affected by that, you probably wouldn't be in that position in the first place. You probably wouldn't be an activist in the first place. So to safeguard against burnout, there are a couple things that people can do. Number one is find figure know yourself. know what you're good at. know what you want to be there for. Are you there to do art for this for this campaign? Are you there to do communications and do press conferences and write, you know um, press releases and stuff for this uh, campaign? Are you there to hold a sign and go home because you've got your kids or you know whatever? don't let anybody judge you for why you show up or why you don't show up, all right? You are there on your time to do what you can to simply move that forward. I'll give you another example of keeping that drum going. Um, when I first started in organizing, I was, uh, know i was still kind of one foot in the housing foreclosure counseling mindset starting to learn about organizing and activism and uh i had this really brilliant um moment where this undocumented uh latina latinx undocumented family um was in deep need. They had a daughter with um, spina bifida, uh, a lot of medical stuff that that needed to be addressed and was being addressed by her home. The home itself was a tool in her care. Her father, who was in construction, had widened doorways, had put down tile, had lowered counters, had done all this stuff so that she could get around. if this if these people had to move out of that home into an apartment, for instance, this girl, probably would have had or or most definitely would have had a steep decline in her overall uh, life experience mm-hmm. that may have resulted in um in her death, you know, like she had she had this thing that part of her care was was the home itself. They were being jerked around by by a particular bank that happens to be in America and um and so what we knew was at this time, the Democratic National Convention was coming to town. All right, so we were organizing in their community. We were were going to their neighbors and saying, hey, would you stand with your neighbor to help them save their home? Um, And just like I said, when I I left housing counseling, if I got to get out on trade and try on on a soapbox with a bullhorn and yell at bankers, that's what I'm gonna do. And sure enough, I was out there on a soapbox with a bullhorn yelling at bankers in the middle of the Democratic National Convention.
0: Nice. Right?
1: And that's different than any other day. All right, So because there was so much press there, because there were so many people, um, so many eyeballs on that particular spot, because if you don't know, Trade and Tryon is the headquarters for that particular bank. So, <clears throat> so we were out there. I had the mother speak. I had the daughter speak. Um, It garnered some press and the story started to grow. And then before you know it, um, it was kind of a a regional story. And then Univision and Telemundo picked it up. And then Hmm. it became an international story. And then it went to California. And then it went to Texas. And then it went to New Mexico. And then it went to Mexico. And then it went to uh, South America. And a week later, the bank came back with a modification. We're gonna work it all out, you know. They had been jerked around for months with this, and uh, and taking advantage of that particular moment was what saved their home and maybe saved this this young girl's life. So there was a build up to that, and we had to keep that drumbeat going, and we were waiting for that moment, and that moment presented itself in the form of the Democratic National Convention you might keep that drumbeat going for years and never see that moment. That moment might be for someone else to take advantage of. Activism has to be a selfless act. It has to be something where you say, I'm going to do it for this long. I'm going to put what I can into it. And hopefully I've moved it forward enough that somebody else will move it forward even more and take it home. If I can't take it home, somebody else will take it home. So, So the other thing is... Organizers should be realistic with activists about what the risks are and what the stakes are, um, what the timeline is, because a lot of times people get in, they think, oh, we're going to have this all wrapped up in, you know, by this next meeting, they're, they're going to meet, they're going to hear us, they're going to hear our stories, they're going to, they're going to fall in love, they're going to, they're going to, or or deeply feel ashamed of themselves. Yeah. Politicians don't feel shame. That's, that's just, uh, that's, that's not. That was a fact. If you're. Yeah, if you're a if you're a career politician in the United States of America, um, I, I I promise you, shame is something they they left long time ago. All right, these people feel no shame. So, it, trying to invoke shame, trying to say you should do the right thing. No, nah, the right thing is wherever is whatever the money says the right thing is. To be completely honest, yeah. So, you have to harness you have to either affect that money or affect their ability to get that money, you know, by either outing them, ousting them, or uh, by somehow containing them. What worked with the, um, it's the Sanchez family, uh, that undocumented family, what worked with them was that the bank in question knew they were going to lose way more money on the bad pit on the bad press on the bad PR than they were if they just gave her the modification that's the math and it always breaks down to the math any campaign first thing' I'm, at, I'm looking at is what's the math where how are we how are we affecting the bottom line wheres it going to go um, looking at longevity finding your place and then learning other skills say I know what I bring to the table and this is what I want to learn while I'm here and then saying, hey, you know, I have an out date. Either it's after this next meeting or it's after the holidays or, you know, it's when my family comes back from, you know, from wherever they're going. Whatever your thing is, have an out, a time when you say, okay, this is where I, this is where I'm, uh, I draw the line. I'm done after this point. There is no shame in stepping back. You can always come back, you know. But once you're burned out, very few people return from that. So, I'd rather see somebody step out, take a break, come back, maybe do something different than run and run and run and run and run and then say, screw it, I'm done. I'm never doing this again. And then go about their, their day.
0: Yeah. I mean, taking breaks is definitely essential. I do it. I have had to teach myself how to do that uh, over the last year or so because 2021 almost burned me out. I think I got to the end of that year and I wasn't sure if I was going to do this podcast anymore. I wasn't sure if I was capable of continuing to do it on a consistent basis. But I think um, learning to take breaks was an incredibly powerful tool that I had to teach myself as far as trying to maintain some longevity in doing this. And I'm assuming, as as you're pointing out, that's what anyone would have to do if they're trying to stay engaged in whatever form of activism it is that they are trying to take. So I definitely appreciate you taking the time to explain all that to us, speaking from experience. And again, talking to Experience, you have been talking about how you have a drive to provide resources for unhoused neighbors in your community. As we're closing out this episode, could you just uh, plug that a little bit before uh, before we say goodbye to listeners?
1: Absolutely. Um, and thank you so much for bringing that up. Uh, in, during the winter, we do a winter drive for unhoused neighbors. Uh, We partner with other organizations, primarily it's um, Greater Charlotte Rise. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, my good friend and um, aspiring president of the United States, Jasmine Sherman. Um, You can look her up. Jasmine Sherman for president. You can find her on Instagram, TikTok. Um, She's even got a Wikipedia page. They've done a whole thing on her now. She was super excited about that. Uh, she is a dedicated socialist. Um, I've known her for years. She puts everything into uh, helping the unhoused, but you know, also she wants to have some real solutions to some of the economic and some of the social problems that we have. So uh, shout out to Jasmine Sherman. Love you, girl. And uh, I'm going to keep it trucking. The unicorn party. All right. So um, with that, uh, we take donations. Um, you can um, visit my Patreon page, uh, patreon.com prepperpig prepper uh, pig. That's prepper, P-R-E-P-P-E-R, pig, like the oink oink. Um, <clears throat> you can also find me on Instagram. Uh, we're also on Venmo. You can find all that information. I think on Venmo, we're uh, at prepper pig. What we do is um, we buy as much, whatever donations we get for the months of, I think it's usually November, December, and then in January during the coldest months here, we have done in the past, we have gone out and gotten firewood for some of the camps and delivered firewood ready to go for folks uh, free of charge. We have shown up with sleeping bags and um, emergency packs, just that have you know your basic medical kind of stuff um, to handle scrapes and and small cuts. Uh, hand warmers. Last year, we did um, we we went hard on uh, thermal underwear, which I was I was really shocked. We we didn't have a lot, but what we had went immediately. It went instantly. The minute people saw that we had thermal underwear, it was gone. So this year, we're definitely going hard on thermal underwear again. um, Really want to be able to provide a lot of sets so that people can stay warm out there. So that's the winter program. But by all means, please come and check me out on Instagram. Uh, That's most people's entry point. You can also find me on Patreon. Uh, I throw a lot of stuff Up there I talk a lot about race, I talk a lot about economics, and I talk a lot about um, simple preparedness that you can do. My version of survival has more to do with understanding your community and your community's needs and how to take care of one another than it does about building a bunker, taking care of yourself, stocking up on your beans and your bullets, I, I don't really feel like that's a productive way to go, which is why Prepper Pig exists. To say communities need to value one another and build structures so that they aren't reliant on um, on outside structures that may be tainted or may come under fire. You know, right now, if you don't have a farmers market near you and you don't have people in your community who know how to how to get that those goods into your community, if you're entirely uh, reliant on a grocery store, because I know in my area, they shut down all the grocery stores except for one. If you're entirely reliant on that grocery store, then what are you going to do if that closes? Or what are you going to do if there's a a strike (laughs) And, and there's no food on the shelves, you know? So it's about learning about these alternative methods of keeping yourselves and your community Um, not just surviving, but robust, but, you know, able to um, create and move forward. Proper Pig, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate
0: you taking the time to talk with us about all of this. For those who are interested, those links will be in the episode description. So go ahead and click into the episode description now, and you'll be able to see those links. If you like this episode, please go ahead and share it on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we hope to see you all in the next
1: episode. All right, come find me. Thanks a lot, Desmond. It's been great.